Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Put yourself in the place of the man for a moment and look back straight into the eyes of the one who has said, stretch out your hand. You will at once see what I am trying to bring you to. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they had delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by G. Campbell Morgan. It was preached in the early 1900s in London. Troy, here we got some uh, some shout outs. We do. We have actually several, I, I mean, a, a multiple of, of fresh, nice uh, reviews came back. It was really great to hear from so many different people. I wanted to read specifically one email by Jason, uh, and you'll actually get to hear more from Jason in the future. He was the gentleman who read The Almost Christian, but I want to share a little bit about how he found uh, our podcast. He said that he was looking for a positive look at Christianity in the church. First, he found our littler, our younger podcast, Martyrs and Missionaries, really enjoyed the look at different people through church history, reading this from him. From there, I found Revive Thoughts, and it quickly became one of my favorite podcasts. I love church history, and getting to hear the different voices, many of which would be considered minor or forgotten in church history, has been amazing. He went on to continue, but I just want to thank Jason for listening. So glad that you have found us and were able to enjoy our show and enjoy the other podcast, Martyrs and Missionaries. We also had some different shout-outs all over Twitter and a bunch of different places, but there was specifically one about a recent episode we put out by Ambrose that Phil mentioned. He said it was uh, on Twitter. He mentioned specifically that that was a really good episode, powerful episode for him, and he loved the history, the backstory, and the sermon itself all coming together. So if you have not listened to that sermon, we hope you do, and we hope you uh, give us a shout out on Twitter or send us an email like Jason did. Just come uh, find a way to interact with us. We love when we hear from you. It really makes doing the show a lot of fun, and it really encourages us a lot as well. To this episode, we're going through G. Campbell Morgan. Might not be a name you're familiar with. In fact, one of the articles I read talking about him was like, G. Campbell Morgan's not a household name today. But he absolutely was an incredibly important person. He's someone that we've had on the show, done before. He's a great, great speaker, was a wonderful preacher in his time. In fact, he was actually known uh, these different nicknames pastors get, Prince of Preachers as Charles Spurgeon, and Campbell Morgan here was actually given the nickname the Prince of Expositors. So that's a really good high compliment at a time when there were a really lot of amazing people. We're going to walk through his life and just talk about some of those key elements, but if you want to hear more, go check out the G. Campbell Morgan episode we did about a year and a half ago, I think, and you'll get even more information about his life and hear another sermon from him. Yeah, it's com- I think it's coming up in about two years or so, so a lot of people probably have not heard that original Campbell Morgan episode. I remember it because his name makes me think of soup, Campbell. I wonder if it really, <laughs> I don't know, but it, it sticks with me. It's not It's not a super well-known name outside He's not of the a soup world. super well-known guy, no. but he gives you that soup feel. Okay, that, I apologize for that pun. That wasn't even clever. G. Campbell Morgan. He was born in the year 1863 to a Welsh family, although he lived in England and Wales 
He comes from a, a pretty strictly religious family. His father was very strict, uh, took the Bible very seriously. But, you know, it kind of seems like maybe not in a good way as, as on a social level. He seems like they were very closed off and isolated from uh, other churches, other believers, other groups. When he was about 10, uh, he saw D.L. Moody come through town, right? D.L. Moody was going around on his revival tours, and he saw him as, as a young 10-year-old and uh, thought it was the neatest thing in the world, and he wanted to be a traveling speaker, a minister, an evangelist, just like D.L. Moody was. We've talked about how Spurgeon helped D.L. Moody get going in those days, and here we kind of see the the progression of D.L. Moody kind of helping G. Campbell Morgan get going. It's kind of neat to see how the progression lives on, the legacy lives on. By the age of 13, that's when he was preaching his first sermon, which uh, is probably too young, but, but, but you can see his heart and his passion for it. After a few years, Morgan began a job as a teacher, which is interesting because he had no formal schooling himself. He had actually been too ill as a child over and over again getting sick. And so he wasn't able to do formal schooling. So he was actually tutored kind of at home, a bit of a homeschooling tutor situation. And yet he himself became a teacher and he was a natural, wonderful teacher. Everyone said he was amazing. They loved him. He had a real career ahead of him as a teacher. But he was spending Sundays going from church to church preaching and helping out wherever he could. Now, almost all the churches that had him preaching, uh, he was an unordained, kind of untaught, you know, literally unschooled guy. Uh, so the, the places where he was ending up were Methodist churches in the area. They would use him for breaks for their pastors when opportunities arose, and he could get opportunities to preach there. And that was pretty much the only place that would take him. This gave Morgan confidence. And he, again, remember, he kind of had that childhood dream of seeing D.L. Moody come to town and shake the town and bring so many to Christ. And so uh, despite, despite being a successful teacher, he really wanted to become a pastor full time. But when he gave his trial sermon at the time, Methodist kind of did a training thing where they had to check how you were to see if you were up for the job, which Joel and I did an episode recently on John Wesley where they talked about uh, how that process got started. When they got to Morgan, when he did his trial sermon, even though he'd been preaching in the area for years, the guy said, look, you're not cut out for this. You're you're no good at preaching. We don't see a future in this for you, and we're not accepting you into this training program. And I mean, as you can imagine, this really knocked him uh, off his feet, really, really, really depressed him. He I mean, he'd kind of spent his whole life building up for this moment. And when he, you know, got the chance to try out, he failed. I, I can't. I'm, I'm going to use do something very dangerous here. Use a sports analogy, but imagine uh, your whole life you've been the star at the the basketball team in high school, and you go to try out for college, and they send you home saying you'll never play basketball. That's kind of what this was to him, and and then, and that doesn't include the spiritual component of just you're not good at preaching. Someone who had seen D.L. Moody as a kid had been working his way slowly in the ministry, who was a great teacher, uh, was just told basically this isn't the career for you. Despite all of this, though, he uh, was firm in his conviction. He totally, fully believed he was being called to be a pastor, even though no one else uh, th thought he was cut out for it. At the age of 26, uh, he got his first pastorate at a small church and uh, began faithfully ministering to the people there and leading that congregation. It was very near, almost next door to a big, large church with a well-known pastor, and after a few years of ministry, this uh, neighboring church's pastor, he was a man named Robert Dale, called Morgan to visit with him, to get to know him. Hey, you know, you're, we're, we're churches on the same block. Let's have lunch and get to know each other. Campbell Morgan was 
really nervous for this visit because he knew he wasn't, you know, formally trained at a seminary. And he thought that this famous minister, this Robert Dale, was going to uh, be tough on him, you know, ridicule him for his theological training and, you know, maybe look down on him, shine it in a light that made it seem like he wasn't taking his work seriously. And Jacob Morgan you know, supposedly began the conversation to up front, being humble about the whole situation, you know, kind of almost apologizing for, uh, you know, maybe not being up to the educational standards that uh, this other minister, this Robert Dale had. And Robert Dale replied and said, no, 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 no. Don't call yourself untrained if God has called you to do the work. He has equipped you and sent you out to do it. And Campbell Morgan did eventually become well-respected and cherished and and well-liked there. He spent a ton of time ministering in North America. Last episode, we focused a lot about on his travels. He traveled to America 54 times in his career, and this is in the era of transatlantic steam steamliners, so it's not it's not a flight. And he would become good friends with Moody's family, and especially D.L. Moody's son. And when D.L. Moody would pass away eventually he was invited to take over the Moody Bible Institute that Dale Moody had founded. And what I'm sure to him felt like a slow progress through his life, it was really only about a decade between when he wanted to be a preacher and him running Dale Moody's school, which is a pretty short time span for, for him to, for God to work in that way. After five successful years helping run Moody Bible Institute, which, I mean, again, D.L. Moody didn't have formal seminary training, neither does G. Campbell Morgan, yet he takes over the school. Uh, He returns to London, and he preaches at Westminster Chapel in the heart of London only a few years after the great Charles Spurgeon had died. And and the reason we kind of bring him up, not just because we're just trying to name Charles Spurgeon in an episode as much as possible, but the people at the time couldn't help but compare these two men together. For starters, they're both friends with D.L. Moody, uh, but also they both were untrained, uneducated, not seminary trained, and yet they're both amazing preachers draw, you know, drawing these huge crowds in and, and teaching the Word of God in really unique ways. So if you think, hey, why do they keep bringing up Charles Spurgeon? It's because there's a connection there between these two people in the minds of the people. And both men would write and publish materials that were actually very challenging to the liberal uh, establishment of their time as well. In the late 19th century, Spurgeon's sword and trowel warned about the coming evangelical downgrade. We've done an episode on this uh, where Charles Spurgeon kind of lost his his uh, his acclaim and his his denomination by saying, if we do not stop it now, our denomination and what we're standing for as Baptists at that time is going to fall by the wayside because we're giving up the Bible, we're giving up inerrancy, we're giving up miracles, we're giving up God. And in Morgan's case, he would write a series of articles called the, that he called the fundamentals of these are what Christians believe we can't compromise on these anymore. This was a challenge to what was happening where the Bible was continuing to get downgraded and people were continuing to move away from supernatural miracles, the virgin birth. And Morgan was very firm. You can't leave these things. These are what Christians believe. These articles the fundamentals became the framework of the fundamentalist movement, which fought very ferociously against that liberal movement of saying that the Bible is no longer inerrant and we don't need to trust it for everything. Now, after a while, Morgan would leave the pastorate. He felt called to travel and preach and teach. And so he led a bunch of revivals and moved around for a long time in America, helping out at different places. And then after a time, he came back to Westminster Chapel to preach again. And while he was there in his later years, I think I believe he was 72 when he came back. Uh, he had a kind of a younger guy that he was helping bring in and would eventually hand the pastorate off to a man who is very famous today, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. So not only did D.L. Moody kind of help train up and raise up G. Campbell Morgan, but 
G. Campbell Morgan did his part in training up and raising up the next person who would be somebody who stood firm in orthodoxy, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's very popular among many people today. One thing I did want to mention is that I thought was very interesting is G. Campbell Morgan was uh, theologically as far from Martin Lloyd-Jones in some ways as you could be. The two of them were not on the same page. G. Campbell Morgan was a dispensational Arminian, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was a you know reformed Calvinist. And yet, one thing I really appreciate is neither of them had a bad thing to say about each other. Both of them really cared for and respected the other, and there are so many positive, just nice things they had to say about each other. And I think that for me, I was really touched by the fact that they didn't let this theological divide change the fact that they both loved the same Jesus and they both had a passion for God's word. And I think that sometimes maybe today, if I can if I can make an application, we sometimes make too big a deal out of this divide. And if two very famous great men like G. Campbell Morgan and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones can put it aside and focus on the growth of God's church, I think it's something that we can work on too. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. G. Campbell Morgan uh, ran in some big circles. He was friends with a lot of well-known names. Charles Spurgeon, F.B. Myers, D.L. Moody, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Robert Dale, and so many other famous people that have deeply impacted the church. But what I think is one of the standout things about G. Campbell Morgan are that all four of his sons uh, followed their dad into ministry. They could see and they loved his heart for ministry especially his heart for the Bible. G. Campbell Morgan was known to read a passage 40 times before he even started to work on an outline for a sermon. It's his deep love for the Bible that was what equipped him and what he attributes any success that he had to. A man who failed his first sermon test would go on to be one of the most well-known preachers of the 20th century. Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. The theme in the sermon is Christ's ability in the presence of inability. Every miracle which Jesus performed was a teaching, and that was because the life of our Lord was unified. His was not a life separated into compartments independent of each other. Upon one occasion, he said, I am the truth a very significant and remarkable statement made by no other teacher. Not, I teach the truth, or I declare the truth, or I believe the truth, or even, I hold the truth. But that, 
I am the truth. In the life of Jesus, in his teaching, in his thinking, in his doing, there were none of the divisions which we are so ready to make. We divide between the secular and the sacred, but you cannot find any such division in the teaching of Jesus. To him, all life was sacred. Everything called by us secular, when he touched it, was revealed to be sacred. He did not divide his life or his thinking into business, recreation, and rest. His whole life was an effort formed in the will of God, essential truth. Therefore, whatever he touched, he touched from the same central conviction. And whatever he did, he did under the impulse of the same age-abiding principles. If he dealt with a man on the physical side of his being, he acted in exactly the same way as he would when dealing with a man on the mental or spiritual side. He lived and taught in the power of the fact of spiritual law in the natural world. I do not say natural law in the spiritual world. That is an inversion of order. But spiritual law in the natural world. All natural things were touched by him from high altitudes of spiritual perception and spiritual power. And consequently, whenever I take up the story of his dealing with a man on the physical side of his nature— I see flaming through it his method in dealing with men in spiritual need. For therefore all the stories of Christ's dealing with physical disability have been used, and rightly, as illustrations of his method with spiritual care. In that way I will take this old and familiar story tonight. My message is to one particular condition of mind, or I might say to one particular class of persons. I want to speak tonight to those who are fearful and afraid of committing themselves wholly to Christ because of their profound awareness of some disability within their own life. There are hundreds of such. I want to speak to the people who, if one should have to deal with them personally about spiritual things, they would say, yes, to every declaration concerning the glory of Christ. Yes, to every affirmation of his perfect example and his gracious tenderness. But yet, when urged to give themselves to him, would utter some word telling of heartbreaking concern, of personal disability, and, consequently, of fear. My message is to the fearful. I do not mean at this moment that particular class of people who are afraid to follow Christ with the fear of cowardice. There are people like that. It is with another kind and quality of fear that I desire to deal. The fear of the man who says, Yes, I would like to be a Christian, but I am afraid that I would fail. It is a fear wholly wholesome and to be respected. I say that not to encourage the fear, for, as God may help me, I want tonight to show you that there is no reason for it. The young man who looks me in the face and says, I would like to be a Christian, but I am afraid I would dishonor his name in the business house where I am. I respect. Happy is the man that fears always, said the preacher long ago, and he was right. It is the man of caution and of fear, conscious of his own disability, who, if we may but lead him into the true and simple relationship to Jesus Christ, which this little story reveals, will be true to him, loyal to him, and will stand against all the storms of opposition. That man is worth helping, worth saving. I want to help him if I can. Let us try to see this thing as it happened, that we may deduce the spiritual values which lie hidden beneath it. The scene is the synagogue, And, as so often in the life of Jesus, his enemies accidentally complimented him. He entered into the synagogue, and there was a man there who had his hand withered, and they watched him. Why did they watch him? Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. 
I am not now interested in the ultimate purpose of these men, the mean and dastardly watching that they might catch him and accuse him. Just notice this fact. Jesus came into the synagogue, and there was a man who most likely had been there again and again, through weeks and months, perhaps years, at all the Sabbath services. A man whose right hand was withered, and immediately the enemies of Christ linked him with the most needy man in the crowd. It is wonderful what an accurate sense of Jesus Christ his enemies had. They did not at all expect that he would be interested in the chief seat of the synagogue, the place of highest honor, but they did expect he would be interested in the one man there who was in the most need, the man whose hand was withered. They linked him in their thinking with need, and they were perfectly right. Of all the men in the synagogue that this Christ of ours would seek out and attempt to help, that was the one man. If the story is a parable, let us apply it as we go. The one man he wants in his house tonight is the man who is in the direst, sorest need. I do not know where he sits or what his name is, but, my brother, if you are in the grip of some dastardly habit that is paralyzing you, you are the man he is after. Blessed be his name, his hand is on me, his ordaining hand, or I dare not speak for him. But I hear him saying, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. We cannot sift this great congregation. Thank God we cannot. It is not our work. Hear this, my brother, hidden away in the crowd, as you think that your neighbor does not know how evil you are in your heart, how tight a hold sin has upon you. The Master sees you, and you are the man he is after. They linked him with need. That is the first thing that flashes out of this story. He knew their thoughts, and was angry with their attempt to entrap him, and the hardening of heart which was displayed. But he did not allow their criticism and opposition to interfere with his blessing. I hear him saying, Stand up. And when the man stands in the midst, he challenges them as to their attitude. Then I hear him say to the man, Stretch out your hand. And as I watch, in wonder and amazement, he stretched it out. And as I look to see the result, his hand was restored. Three things, then, demand our close attention. First, the command of Jesus, stretch out your hand. Secondly, the obedience of the man, he stretched it out. Thirdly, the result, his hand was restored. Now hear the command, and I want to ask you to do something which is a little difficult. Imaginatively, will you come into this synagogue with me? Let us forget this building and the people who are around us and transport ourselves in imagination overseas and back through centuries. We are in the synagogue watching. Here is the man with the hand withered. I do not attempt to enter into any explanation. I will take the word as it stands, withered, devoid of power, paralyzed, if you will, or palsied, if you will, but withered, nerveless, devoid of feeling, unable to work. That is the picture. As you are looking at the man with the withered hand, I want you to keep looking at him. The one thing you must not do is look at the one who speaks to him. I want you, if you will, to turn your back upon Jesus Christ in contemplating this scene. We are back in the synagogue, among all the people who were there, without all the accumulated testimony of the centuries to the power of Jesus Christ, which is our heritage and inheritance. There is the man with the withered hand. The one thing he cannot do is to use that hand. It is powerless, nerveless, withered. As I look at him with my back to Christ, I hear Christ say, Stretch out your hand. And in a moment, my mind is in revolt against Christ. 
I say to him, What do you mean by telling this man to stretch out his hand? It is the one thing he cannot do. Are you mocking his handicap? Are you asking him in the presence of these people to attempt the thing which, if he could do, he would have done long ago? This is the man's disability. Why ask him to do the thing he cannot do? I say to Christ as he stands there, This thing is impossible, and therefore it is unreasonable. I cannot say that, save as I keep my eye fixed upon the man with the withered hand. Change your viewpoint. Once again, let your imagination play. Stand with me in the synagogue, and being perfectly familiar with the disability of the man with the withered hand, for you have known him for years, look into the face of the one who said, stretch out your hand. There is always a quality in these stories not present in the cold letter on the page. You must always bring into your thinking the fact of the person of Christ. This is not imagination. It is proven by all the context and all that happened. If you will follow me, let me try to lead you in an attempt to do not what the critics did, but what the man did. Put yourself in the place of the man for a moment and look back straight into the eyes of the one who has said, stretch out your hand. I dare venture to affirm that if you can do it, if you can imagine the man doing it, if you will forget the spiritual application and see merely the story, you will at once see what I am trying to bring you to. On that day, I think I know the things which passed, flash after flash, through this man's mind. The first thing was this. He says, stretch out your hand. I cannot do it. Then he looked straight back into those eyes, and I think he said in his heart, he would not tell me to do it if he did not mean something that I cannot comprehend. I cannot do it, but I will do it, because he says it. I shall will to do it. I think it is very likely that doubt lurked at the back of his mind while his will prompted obedience, but the will did prompt obedience. That is the important truth. Looking into the face of Jesus, that face which carried its own argument perpetually as all the stories reveal if you read them carefully, the man said in his heart, I cannot, but I will. It is a strange contradiction, but that is what he said that day in his heart. The moment he said, I will, to the command of Christ, he began to find the forces that he had lacked pulsating through the nerves that had made no response, and all strength was his, and he stretched out his hand. Surely the picture carries its own teaching. First of all, it teaches me that when Jesus begins to touch any man's disability, his perpetual method is that of bringing the man face to face with the one impossible thing in his life. He does not undertake a case and undertaking it say, Now we will not notice the evil thing. We will begin outside it. He goes right to the heart of the paralysis, as it is manifest in the case of the man he is dealing with. I do not know what Christ is saying to you, particularly, specifically. But I do know this. He is bringing you face to face with the one thing which has mastered you and kept you away from him for so long. He does not stay to admire the hand you can use. That is not his business. He draws your attention and concentrates your thought immediately upon the power that is paralyzed. You say to me, in this great scheme of salvation, isn't it true that the whole man is paralyzed? It may be so, but this is also true that every man coming to Christ comes at first in his supreme weakness, in one point of supreme difficulty. If I may put the thing from another standpoint, men are kept away from Christ by some one thing, some pride of the eye, or some lust of the flesh, some habit of life, some desire of the carnal nature, 
some one thing. If it were possible for all the mists to melt about us tonight, and we who have never yielded to Christ could be seen in the clear light of the absolute truth, it would be found that, in every case, there is one thing holding you back. When Jesus said to the young ruler, One thing you lack, he was not dealing with one case only, but with a case which stands forevermore as the type of those who need him and yet refuse him. His method is always that of bringing men face to face with the master paralysis of the life. Stretch out your hand. The one thing you cannot do, do. The one thing you are unable to do at this moment, do that. So far, all this appears to be not calculated to help, but to frighten the soul. Yet, we must begin where Christ begins. Is it some habit which masters you? Christ says, abandon it now and forever. Is it someone's power that is paralyzed in your life? Christ says, use it. You tell me your difficulty is right in the center of your being, with your will. You have no willpower. Christ says, exercise your will and abandon yourself to me by an act of will. Is your hand withered? Stretch it out. That is his method. Now notice the obedience. He stretched it out. Let us try to see how this happened. I think there are three of the simplest things to be noticed. First of all, there was a deep conviction in the heart of the man that his hand was withered. In the second place, there was created in his mind, somehow, a profound conviction that Christ was not there to mock him, that Christ was there in some way to draw attention to his disability in order to turn it into ability. In the third place, by confession of faith, the man attempted the thing commanded, in obedience to the one commanding, and in the moment when he made that confession of faith by an act of will, he made contact with all the infinite resources of Christ. And there came, like a new dynamic, healing, helping life, and he did the thing he could not do. Again, the picture is a parable. There is no man here who will stretch out his hand in obedience to Christ, save upon the basis of a profound conviction of need. If you do not know the withering of your power, if you have not yet felt the grip of habit upon you, if you are still unconscious of paralysis, I do not think I can persuade you to this Christ, at least not by this sermon. It is to the man who knows his need that this story appeals. You must begin where this man began. You have begun there. You are so close to Christ. You know your need. I am quite willing to forget all the rest of the congregation if I can talk to one man hidden away. You know your need. You say, one power paralyzed? Why, all my powers are paralyzed. In the grip of one habit, I am in the grip of more than I care to name. Incompetent in one power, my whole life is paralyzed. You know your need. Now, I pray you, look into the face of Christ and think well of what he has proved himself equal to do in all the centuries that have passed. And remember this, that what he has been doing, he still is doing. And what he is doing for others, he waits to do for you. In your heart is a great confidence in his ability to save certain men. Honestly and logically, apply that confidence to your own need first. Say, if you will, that you cannot think how he can help you. But remember that he who has helped scores of cases, hundreds, thousands of cases such as yours, is surely not limited in your lonely case among all the sons of need that the centuries have produced. May there come back to you confidence in his ability. But neither conviction of need nor confidence in Christ's ability will bring healing. Healing can come only when a man, convinced of need, aware of Christ's ability, 
obeys his command and by an act of will surrenders to him. Obedience determined upon by act of will, then contact is made with him in his power, and the hand willed to be stretched out because Christ commands it becomes the hand made whole. What was the last thing in the story? The result, his hand was restored. Matthew tells us that his hand was restored whole as the other. Here was a change from disease to health, from weakness to power, from uselessness to usefulness. All was done in the moment when, in obedience to Christ, he did the impossible thing and found the power to do it communicated in the act of his surrender. Here again the picture is a parable. There comes into his life a change more wonderful, more marvelous spiritually, than was the change brought about in the hand of this man physically. And yet, the same in essence. In the moment of your surrender and your obedience, you will be changed from spiritual disease to spiritual health, from spiritual disability to spiritual ability, from spiritual uselessness to spiritual usefulness. For in all the withered powers, there lie dormant possibilities which can be awakened only by the touch of the life and resources of Christ. Christ's life and resources can touch these powers only as man's will yields to Christ's will, and he begins to use the activity of obedience. The moment that surrender is made, power is communicated, and the whole spiritual life is changed. That is the gospel. It is not an explanation of all the mystery of the process or of the mystery of the communication of life, but that is practically exactly what Christ does for men. How many people here tonight who are conscious of spiritual disability, seeing the vision occasionally, but never able to realize it, feeling a passionate desire for communion, for purity, for holiness and spiritual power, yet always mastered by evil things. Before you leave this building tonight, Jesus Christ can change your death into life, your disease into health, your blindness into vision, your incompetence into competence, your disability into ability, your I cannot into your I can. Unless Jesus Christ can do that, he cannot help me, and he cannot help hundreds and thousands of men. What Jesus Christ is waiting to do, and is able to do, and has been doing for men through all the ages, is not to present an ideal to them which they are to copy, but to communicate life which enables them to realize the ideal they have seen. What Jesus has done is not to give men directions on how to use the withered hand, but to communicate power to the withered hand, so that they may be able to use it under the impulse of indwelling life. Is there anything else here? It is not written, but I think we may follow the story. What happened to the man afterward? What happened to his withered hand afterward? The hand no longer withered, but whole, restored like the other. How can he maintain that hand in strength? I think I see him going away from Jesus that day saying, Well, this is wonderful. See here, this withered hand is healed. I have not been able to lift anything, and now I can lift things easily. I have not positively felt life in it, and now it thrills with life. Then I can imagine him saying to himself, I have obtained a great blessing today. I must take care of it. Then I can imagine that he takes that hand, healed, restored, made whole as the other, and carefully wraps it in bandages to preserve it, and places it somewhere in his bosom to take care of it, and keeps it there lest it should be harmed again. You see the folly of this whole theory. You see the tragedy of the folly if you carry it out far enough. Let a man do that, and the hand will actually wither again, for life is maintained in strength by use. When Christ gives a man back his power, it is not that the man may guard it, 
but that he may use it. That man will retain life in its fullness by using it, by taking hold of weights and lifting them. If he is a mechanic, by taking up his tools, by going back to work. That is the meaning of the healing of the withered hand. Man is not to take care of his withered hand by abandoning it, but to preserve it in strength by using it for the thing for which it was first created. That which we have entered to add to the picture is also a parable. You say, There was a time when I saw his face. There was a moment when I came back with my withered powers to Christ, and in obedience to him I commenced to use them, and he gave me back those powers. But now I have lost them. My hand is withered again. Instead of power there is paralysis, which seems more deadly than before. How have you lost your power? There may be many ways with which I am not dealing. One way of losing power is that of perpetually attempting to take care of it instead of using it. There are hundreds of people who lose their spiritual power by the very attempt they make to conserve it. I am not at all sure that the churches are not in danger of being filled with weak, nerveless, anemic men and women, because they are so forever anxious to deepen their own spiritual life. I am not sure that the perpetual restless hurrying to and fro in the attempt to conserve personal spirituality is not a prolific source of spiritual paralysis. In the physical realm, you have known some people who are forevermore carrying round a thermometer and taking their temperature. They have always got their hand on their pulse, and are wondering whether they are quite so well as they used to be. You know, these are the people who are never very healthy. If you can make them break their thermometer and get their hand off their pulse and turn out and work, they will be better. What is true in the physical is true also in the spiritual. I want to warn you with all my heart against perpetual spiritual introspection. As Christ gives you new power, use it in the world's wide field for him. Think more of the need of the man who is down than of your own personal need. Think more of the enterprises of your Lord than of your own strength or weakness. Look less in and more out and up into the face of Jesus and take every power he gave you when you trusted him and get out onto the field in ceaseless, hard toil for him and his kingdom. Then your spiritual life is likely to be deepened and strengthened and broadened. And instead of anemic and sentimental religion, we will have full-blooded, robust, strenuous Christianity, which will lift the world and help and bless it. Do not put your restored hand into a sling. Use it. That is the meaning of this story. In conclusion, I go back from that added word, that carrying out of the picture, a little beyond the actual happenings in the synagogue, and bring you to the central thought, for I want to help the man who is afraid. Are you afraid because you know your own weakness? Your fear is wholesome. But now, I beg you, for one moment, take your eyes off your own weakness and fix them upon Christ. If you will do that, then hear him say, stretch out your hand. And know this, when he tells a man to do the impossible thing, he does it knowing that he has in his gift all that is needed to help the man do it. The moment you obey, he gives over to you the resources of his power. I may wind down this whole message and bring it to this final word. Take your eyes off your own disability and fix them upon his ability. Doing that, obey him, and by obeying him, make contact with his power, and you will feel the thrill and force of it, and know its results in restoration of lost and paralyzed powers. Do not think of this as a sermon, but as a message to you. 
There are some here tonight who crossed this threshold with a reverent and absolutely sincere desire to sit in the quiet of the sanctuary and hear some message from on high. Yet you know that in your life, these messages are the thing that spoils your good time. You hate it as much as any other man hates it, and more. But you feel that it is your master, that it is useless trying. So it is, in your own strength. If you have gotten as far as that, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But now, I beg you, from your weakness, look to Jesus' power. From your inability, turn to all that he is able to do, and begin again. Not to try in your own strength, but to trust and to obey. Though you make no sign of your surrender, if you will do so, in the moment of crisis that waits for you just over the threshold of the sanctuary at the close of the first day of the week, in the moment of crisis that waits for you tonight, you will find his strength made perfect in weakness. And the thing you could not do, you will be able to do through him who strengthens you. This is a thought I have. It's not directly related to the sermon, although it is a wonderful sermon, but it was kind of building on the point I made earlier in the episode how Martin Lloyd-Jones and G. Campbell Morgan from a theological perspective, would not have gotten along. And they remind me of some of the other greats like George Whitfield and John Wesley who had their tiffs and stuff. But I, at, at the memorial service of G. Campbell Morgan, Martin Lloyd-Jones you know, was passing, uh, passionately preaching about the life that uh, Morgan lived. And he had this to say, but the point I want to make about him as a preacher is this, that we all agreed that he was God's gift to his church. He surely was the supreme illustration of the fact that God always gives his gifts at the right time. When did he come upon the scene? It was immediately after those wonderful campaigns of D.L. Moody and Sankey in this country. There had, been those great vis- there had been those great visitations of the Spirit. Men and women had been converted by the thousand. This great evangelistic movement had come into the whole life of the church. And what was needed above everything else at that point was someone who could teach these converts. And a man came from God whose name was George Campbell Morgan. And he came at the critical moment at the very right time when all those spiritual emotions and experiences needed to be harnessed and deepened and fostered. The evangelists had done their work. It was time for the teacher, and God sent him. I don't think there can be higher praise that could probably be preached at your funeral than that you were the man God sent at the right moment at the right time to teach people the Bible, uh, coming from your own disciple, who again, and we talk about these all the time on the shows, but these people who were discipled by somebody, they didn't know when they were discipling them. They were discipling a future great leader of the church. And uh, Gene Campbell Morgan, not a man that everyone remembers today, but I think it's somebody we need to remember today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by David K. Martin. David K. Martin is an audiobook narrator who lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with his wife and children. Do you need an audiobook narrator? Do you need a narrator of any sorts? Check out his website, davidkmartin.net to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we please ask you to share. Tell other people, let them know what you just listened to in this awesome sermon, this great background information on G. Campbell Morgan that they can't get anywhere else. We have had a lot of new listeners. In fact, we just hit a personal record for the number of listeners we've had in the past 30 days. Revive Thoughts has never had as many people listening, which I can't imagine a better way to start your new year than listening to these great and wonderful sermons from men of the past. We ask that you send them to your friends and let other people know what we're doing here at Revive Thoughts. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.